This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is addressing the fears in our lives. In the first half, Scott C. Esplin shares his address, Daddy, Is Jesus Real? Overcoming Fear Through Faith in Christ. Then in the second half, Gregory Clark speaks on some lessons on faith and fear. I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak today and for the support of family, colleagues, students, and friends who are here. I invite you to reflect on the last time you experienced the feeling of fear. Was it wondering if you would be admitted into one of the many competitive degree programs here at Brigham Young University? Or waiting to see if the girl you asked out wants to go out again? Or worse yet, wondering what to do when she does? For me, the feeling is as recent as sitting on this stand, looking into the faces of so many, and knowing that, through the miracle of technology, thousands more are watching this message. Like you, I can testify that the feeling of fear is real. Indeed, of this powerful emotion, Elder David A. Bednar taught in last April's General Conference. Notably, one of the first effects of the fall was for Adam and Eve to experience fear. This potent emotion is an important element of our mortal existence. Today I want to visit with you about overcoming the fears that are an essential part of our experience in this earth life. One of my favorite classes to teach here on campus is the Doctrine and Covenants, because I find it highly relevant in my own life and in the lives of my students. In a well-known episode from the text, Oliver Cowdery, the primary scribe for the translation of the Book of Mormon, was offered the opportunity of a lifetime to join Joseph Smith as a translator of that sacred book of Scripture. Oliver was instructed, Ask that you may know the mysteries of God, and that you may translate and receive knowledge from all those ancient records which have been hid up, that are sacred, and according to your faith shall it be done unto you. Shortly thereafter, when Oliver failed in his attempt to translate a portion of the Book of Mormon, the Lord explained the reasons for his failure. Outlining several causes, the Lord declared, And behold, it is because that you did not continue as you commenced when you began to translate that I have taken away this privilege from you. Furthermore, he added, Behold, it was expedient when you commenced, but you feared, and the time is past, and it is not expedient now. I have long wondered what it was that Oliver feared that caused him to not continue as he had commenced. Knowing that the project was of eternal importance, did he fear making a mistake and thus marring the sacred publication? I was the age of most of you when this scriptural episode came to have special meaning for me. I was in graduate school here at BYU and began asking out a particular girl. And, as things progressed, I became scared. Like Oliver Cowdery, fear caused me to not continue as I had commenced. I was afraid of making the wrong decision, one that I knew was important and, ideally, eternal. My poorly thought-out solution to this fear was to stop asking the girl out. As weeks turned into months, I buried myself in other things, all the while praying if I should pursue a relationship that I clearly wasn't doing anything to nurture. Finally, one Sunday I was in church here on campus when I made up my mind. I would pursue the relationship. What would be the worst that could happen? Maybe I would get married, I thought. <laughs> I called her apartment, only to learn that she had gone home that weekend. I left a message for her to call me when she returned, 
which, incidentally, is ideal for someone gripped by dating paralysis. The last thing a young man really wants to do is talk. That afternoon, my dad called. Have you heard the news? He asked. The girl was engaged. She returned my call later that night. Scott, I heard you called. Yes, I was just calling to congratulate you on your engagement, was my response. (laughs) Fear of the future had kept me from continuing what I had commenced, and the time had passed. I thought often about that experience and the Lord's instruction to Oliver Cowdery concerning fear the next six years of my single life. During those frustrating years of learning to conquer my fears, I fell in love with another section of the Doctrine and Covenants, section 38. In the month before this marvelous revelation was received, the Lord instructed Church members in New York, a commandment I give unto the Church, that it is expedient in me that they should assemble together at the Ohio. Fear of the unknown must have gripped their hearts. What would they do about their homes, their loved ones, or their professions? What would the future hold for them as they moved into the unknown? Understandably, when the members gathered for conference in Fayette, New York in early January 1831, they were concerned about the implications of this command. Describing the occasion, Church historian John Whitmer recorded, The solemnities of eternity rested on the congregation, and having previously received a revelation to go to Ohio, they desired to know somewhat more concerning this matter. Answering their questions as to why they were to move to Ohio, the Lord began, Thus saith the Lord your God, even Jesus Christ, the great I Am, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the same which looked upon the wide expanse of eternity and all the seraphic hosts of heaven before the world was made, the same which knoweth all things, for all things are present before mine eyes. The Lord appears to be saying to his saints what I love to respond to my own children when they ask questions like, Why do we have to go to bed? Why do I have to eat my vegetables? Or why can't I hit my little brother back? In essence, the Lord's response, like mine, is, Because I know best. However, in this and all other cases, He really does know best. Also, unlike my futile fatherly response to my children, the Lord follows up with this promise only He can fulfill. But behold, verily, verily, I say unto you that mine eyes are upon you. I am in your midst, and ye cannot see me. But the day soon cometh that ye shall see me, and know that I am. Don't we all have times like this in our past, when we asked why, only to look back and recognize that God was with us? We couldn't see Him, but now we do. Don't we all have a job we desperately wanted, a major we wanted to get into, or a person we wanted to date, about what or whom we may have even prayed in earnest in the past? Aren't we all glad that God was in our midst during those why times about which we now gratefully see? Though the Lord outlined that members should trust both His omniscience and His aid, John Whitmer's history of these events recalls, After the Lord had manifest the words through Joseph the seer, there were some divisions among the congregation. Some would not receive it as the word of the Lord, but held that Joseph had invented it himself to deceive the people, that in the end he might get gain. Sadly, while some did see the hand of the Lord in the command, others, gripped by uncertainty and fear, did not. So how do we overcome our fears? 
act in faith, and move forward toward an uncertain future? Eleven years ago last fall, I was dating my wife, Janice. The week before Thanksgiving, I invited her to come home with me to southern Utah for the holiday weekend. She accepted. And then, once again, I became really scared. I'd taken girls on road trips home before, and for those familiar with Interstate 15 between Provo and southern Utah, usually by about the town of Nephi, they became the longest weekends of my life. I started to think of the ways I could uninvite Janice. With fear swirling in my head, I came to campus on the Monday before Thanksgiving. Preparing to teach my class that day, I stumbled across these words at the beginning of Doctrine and Covenants, section 67. Behold and hearken, O ye elders of my Church, who have assembled yourselves together, whose prayers I have heard, whose hearts I know, and whose desires have come up before me. As a 30-year-old elder, I had the desire and have been praying for a long time that I might find a spouse and begin an eternal companionship. I could relate to these early saints. The Lord continues, Behold, and lo, mine eyes are upon you, and the heavens and the earth are in mine hands, and the riches of eternity are mine to give. In my office of the Joseph Smith Building that morning, the thought struck me, Maybe marriage is one of the riches of eternity and maybe it is God's to give. The Revelation then warns, Ye endeavored to believe that ye should receive the blessing which was offered unto you. But behold, verily I say unto you, there were fears in your hearts. And verily, this is the reason that ye did not receive. I realized if I didn't face my fear of an uncertain future, I might never receive the blessings the Lord had in store for me. I took Janice home for Thanksgiving and the weekend went wonderfully. Returning to Provo, however, my worst fears of carrying on an extended conversation with a girl were realized. A snowstorm forced the closure of Interstate 15, and the two of us were stranded together in the car between the Utah towns of Beaver and Fillmore for several hours, with no choice but to simply talk to each other. As our three-hour road trip turned into seven, I realized that if we could survive this time together, maybe we could also face my fears of eternal marriage. (laughs) From these experiences, I learned a valuable lesson. As you experience faith to overcome fears of future uncertainty, you will see God's hand in your life. In fact, just a few short verses later in the Doctrine and Covenants, in section 67, the Lord promises, And again, verily I say unto you, that it is your privilege and a promise I give unto you that have been ordained unto this ministry, that inasmuch as you strip yourselves from jealousies and fears and humble yourself before me, for ye are not sufficiently humble, the veil shall be rent, and you shall see me and know that I am. I now look back on those years of post-mission single life and, like the saints in the Doctrine and Covenants, realize that God was in my midst and I couldn't see Him. There were lessons I needed to learn, primarily about overcoming fear, coupled with experiences both my wife and I needed to have, that eventually prepared us for each other and our future together. As I stripped myself of fear, the day came that I could see God's hand and receive the riches of eternity, but they only came as I exercised faith. Facing fear in our lives isn't limited to dramatic experiences involving unknown future events 
like relocating at the command of the Lord or finding an eternal companion. Indeed, the happiness of some is crippled by fears of past failures and the foreboding worry that the present and future can never become bright again. I've been learning this lesson lately from my children. To protect the not-so-innocent, I won't name names, but this experience involved one of my children and a few of her friends getting sent to the principal's office in first grade after an incident involving a secret club, a confrontation, and another girl getting tapped on the head with a stick. Though the situation was quickly resolved with missing recess and a written apology to the girl who had been hit, this incident continues to haunt my daughter. Last fall, in the weeks before starting third grade, we would often find my daughter in tears, worrying that her new teacher and friends would discover that she had been sent to the principal's office in first grade and that her social life and academic future would be forever ruined. In fact, just last week, when asked if she was happy, her response was, I would be if I hadn't been sent to the principal's office in first grade. (laughs) Worst of all, she often questions her worth and, most importantly, her ability to go to the celestial kingdom because, after all, no one else in our family has ever been sent to the principal's office. How many of us allow fears from our own getting sent to the principal's office to paralyze us from moving forward in faith in our lives? Even after repenting, do we ever let our past mistakes impede us from enjoying happiness now and having hope for the future? Many of us fear falling short of our divine potential because our mistakes remind us that we are so far from perfect. Author Gerald M. Lund, who also served the Church as a member of the Seventy, offered this wise counsel. Remember that one of Satan's strategies, especially with good people, is to whisper in their ears, If you are not perfect, you are failing. This is one of his most effective deceptions, for it contains some elements of truth. But it is deception nonetheless. While we should never be completely satisfied until we are perfect, Elder Lund continued, we should recognize that God is pleased with every effort we make, no matter how faltering, to better ourselves. One of the most commonly listed attributes of God is that He is long-suffering and quick to show mercy, Elder Lund concluded. He wants us to strive for perfection, but the fact that we have not yet achieved it does not mean we are failing. Sometimes good people, like you and my daughter, become crippled by fear because focusing on past imperfections clouds the vision of how the Lord feels about you now and what your potential can be in eternity. We are keenly aware of what the Apostle Paul taught the Romans, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We feel so far from His majestic ideal and often fear that we will never reach our celestial destiny. In these instances, the wise counsel of Elder Neal A. Maxwell may be helpful. Our perfect Father does not expect us to be perfect children yet. He had only one such child. Meanwhile, therefore, sometimes with smudges on our cheeks, dirt on our hands, and shoes untied, stammeringly but smilingly, we present God with a dandelion, as if it were an orchid or a rose. If for now the dandelion is the best we have to offer, He receives it knowing what we may later place on the altar. 
it is good to remember how young we are spiritually. With my daughter and so many like her in my mind, I've been impressed lately with the following verse of Scripture, again in the Doctrine and Covenants. As part of the Kirtland Temple dedicatory prayer, the Prophet Joseph Smith pled, O Jehovah, have mercy upon this people, and, as all men sin, forgive the transgressions of thy people, and let them be blotted out forever. Part of becoming like and returning to our Heavenly Father, even when we feel so imperfect in relation to Him, includes believing Him both as we repent and after. We typically and rightly recite in the fourth article of faith. We believe that the first principles and ordinances of the gospel are, first, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, second, repentance. In doing so, we imply an order. Faith comes first, then repentance. However, in many passages of Scripture, belief also follows repentance. In Doctrine and Covenants 20, it reads, And we know that all men must repent and believe on the name of Jesus Christ, and worship the Father in His name, and endure in faith on His name to the end, or they cannot be saved in the kingdom of God. To the Nephites, Christ taught, I bear record that the Father commandeth all men everywhere to repent and believe in me. And finally, rejoicing in the success of his missionary labors, Ammon told his fellow companions, My joy is carried away, even unto boasting in my God, for he has all power, all wisdom, and all understanding. He comprehendeth all things, and he is a merciful being, even unto salvation, to those who will repent and believe on his name. Faith leads to repentance of our past mistakes. But all of us, including an eight-year-old girl who fears she isn't perfect, need to follow necessary repentance up with belief, a belief in God and a belief that, though we all sin, the Atonement of Jesus Christ can and will save us. Such belief can replace our fears of the past with a joy in our present circumstances and a bright hope for our futures. In the end, it is nurturing and acting on this belief that will do more than save us. It will perfect us. When our view of God's hand is obscured by the temptations and the sins which do so easily beset us, we, like Nephi, need to know in whom we have trusted. Counseling university students to apply this power of belief in their lives, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland instructed this audience more than 30 years ago. I am not sure what your most painful memories might be. I am certain we could all list many problems. Some may be sins that God Himself has declared most serious. Others may be less serious disappointments—poor job performance, a difficult relationship with your family, or personal pain with a friend. Whatever the list, it is bound to be long when we add up all the dumb things we have done. And my greatest fear, Elder Holland says, is that you will not believe in other chances, that you will not believe in any future at all. After summarizing Shakespeare's tragic story of Macbeth, Elder Holland continued, Unless we believe in repentance and restoration, unless we believe there can be a way back from our mistakes, whether those sins be sexual or social or civil or academic, whether they be great or small, unless we believe we can start over on solid ground 
with our past put behind us and genuine hope for the future. In short, if we cannot believe in the compassion of Christ and His redemptive love, then I think we, in our own way, are as hopeless as Macbeth and our view of life just as depressing. More recently, at a devotional like this one at the start of a new year, Elder Holland added, There is something in us, at least in too many of us, that particularly fails to forgive and forget earlier mistakes in life, either mistakes we ourselves have made or the mistakes of others. That is not good. It is not Christian. It stands in terrible opposition to the grandeur and majesty of the Atonement of Jesus Christ. To be tied to earlier mistakes, our own or other people's, is the worst kind of wallowing in the past from which we are called to cease and desist. Perhaps at this beginning of a new year, there is no greater requirement for us than to do as the Lord Himself said He does. Behold, he who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven, and I, the Lord, remember them no more. The proviso, of course, is that repentance has to be sincere, Elder Holland added. But when it is, and when honest effort is being made to progress, we are guilty of the greater sin if we keep remembering and recalling and rebashing someone with their earlier mistakes, and that someone might be ourselves. We can be so hard on ourselves, Elder Holland concludes, often much more so than with others. Gratefully, I recently had the chance to teach to my fearful daughter that we can repent and move on in our lives rather than let our past scar and cripple us. As my father and I finished work on a playhouse for my kids this past fall, I came across the name of my daughter's friend scribbled on the side of the door. Though my nervous daughter wasn't the one who had written it, her anxiety kicked into high gear. Don't tell Grandpa was her first plea, followed shortly thereafter by the question, Was that before or after I was baptized? Her logical child's thought was, Am I accountable for my friend's graffiti on the playhouse? Her follow-up question to me was, Can I be forgiven? A past mistake, in this case not even one of her own doing, threatened to cloud her happiness both in the present and the future. We then discussed her fears from being sent to the principal's office in first grade and how it was still affecting her life. We talked about the importance of repentance and how, once we have repented, we need to believe in the power of the Atonement in our lives. Standing on the porch of that playhouse, I pulled up the following words on my phone from the final General Conference address by President Boyd K. Packer. Nowhere is the generosity and mercy of God more manifest than in repentance, President Packer taught. Our physical bodies, when harmed, are able to repair themselves, sometimes with the help of a physician. If the damage is extensive, however, often a scar will remain as a reminder of the injury. With our spiritual bodies, it is another matter. Our spirits are damaged when we make mistakes and commit sins. But unlike the case of our mortal bodies, when the repentance process is complete, no scars remain because of the Atonement of Jesus Christ. President Packer then added his testimony. The Atonement which can reclaim each one of us bears no scars. That means that no matter what we have done, or where we have been, or how something happened, if we truly repent, He has promised that He would atone. And when He atoned, 
That settled that. There are so many of us who are thrashing around, as it were, with feelings of guilt, not knowing quite how to escape. You escape by accepting the Atonement of Christ, and all that was heartache can turn to beauty and love and eternity. If you have something that is bothering you, something so long ago you can hardly remember it, put the Atonement to work. It will clean it up, and you, as does he, will remember your sins no more. Handing her my paintbrush, we repeated the words, no scars, as she painted over her friend's name. So how do we develop the faith necessary to conquer our fears resulting from an imperfect past or an uncertain future? As a parent, I've thought long and hard about that lately, especially because I have young children who I deeply want to have faith. Importantly, both of the fears I have been discussing are rooted in the same thing—the unknown. Faith can displace fear because it is rooted in the knowledge of God. The lectures on faith teach. Let us here observe that three things are necessary in order that any rational and intelligent being may exercise faith in God unto life and salvation. First, the idea that He actually exists. Secondly, a correct idea of his character, perfections, and attributes. Thirdly, an actual knowledge that the course of life which he is pursuing is according to his will. I am committed in my own life and in the lives of my children to develop faith by coming to know God. Elder David A. Bednar taught, Correct knowledge of and faith in the Lord empower us to hush our fears because Jesus Christ is the only source of enduring peace. Furthermore, our prophet, President Thomas S. Monson, has promised, Though the storm clouds may gather, though the rains may pour down upon us, our knowledge of the gospel and our love of our Heavenly Father and of our Savior will comfort and sustain us and bring joy to our hearts as we walk uprightly and keep the commandments. There will be nothing in this world that can defeat us. My brothers and sisters, fear not. Be of good courage. The future is as bright as your faith. A few years ago, our children watched for the first time the movie Shrek Forever After. The story features the hero Shrek and his conflict with Rumpelstiltskin and an army of witches. That night, my wife and I were awakened by the cries of our then four-year-old little girl, whose bad dream had her screaming in fear, The witches are going to get me. The witches are going to get me. Entering her bedroom, I sought to reassure her. On the wall in her room hangs a picture of Jesus comforting a little child. Hoping for a quick return to sleep for her and for me, I told her, You can pray. Jesus loves you and will protect you. And by the way, Witches aren't real. She looked up at me with questioning eyes and asked, Daddy, is Jesus real? The logic of a four-year-old at two in the morning was clear. If witches aren't real, then what about this Jesus you tell me about? We had a good long talk. As I testified to her, I testify to you. 
God, our Father, is real. His Son is real. Our faith in them will be strengthened as we learn more completely about them and have sacred experiences with them. As we do, we will feel of their love, a perfect love that casteth out all fear. Of that I testify. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is addressing the fears in our lives. We've just heard from Scott C. Esplin. After the break, we'll return with Gregory Clark for some lessons on faith and fear. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is addressing the fears in our lives. Next is Gregory Clark, Associate Dean of the BYU College of Humanities at the time of this address, titled Some Lessons on Faith and Fear. I'm humbled by the opportunity to speak to you today, and I pray that what I have to say will be helpful to you and pleasing to the Lord. I approached this opportunity with some fear, fear that I might not get the doctrine quite right, fear that those of you who know me will recognize the extent to which I don't practice what I'm going to preach, fear that because I have more questions about these matters than answers, I won't have much to say that's useful. But I'll proceed upon faith, and that really is the point of my message today. I'm primarily a teacher of writing. And for me, this speaking assignment has been primarily a writing assignment. It isn't finished, but time ran out and I had to stop. That's the way it is for me with important writing assignments. It may be that the most important writing assignments are the ones we aren't able to finish. We aren't able to finish them because they engage us in a process of learning that doesn't have an end. I started this assignment with a plan for the finished project. But in the process of writing, I learned things I hadn't anticipated, and now I'm going to say things that are not what I had initially planned. I had planned to say what I thought you needed to hear, but I've ended up preparing to say today what turns out to be what I need to hear. And I think that's what good writing assignments do. They teach those who do the writing the things we need to learn. So I'll be talking to myself today. But I hope there's something in what I have to say that will be helpful to you. I've been learning about the relationship of faith and fear. I'm beginning to think that faith and fear, as much as good and evil, is the opposition that structures my experience in this life. Essentially, when I'm living in faith, I don't fear change or changing myself for the better. But when I'm living in fear, I find change and changing, for the better at least, almost impossible. It's important to learn how to live in faith rather than fear because the process of changing for the better is at the very foundation of the Father's plan for us. Changing for the better is what we are here in this life to do, and it's what the mission of His Son enables us to do. So I want to share with you today what I've been learning about faith and fear. The first lesson I've learned is that, at least in my life, fear works directly against faith. It pulls me away from the Lord. 
To understand why that is, I've been looking at the scriptures to learn more about faith and its relationship to fear and want to share with you what I've found there. But I've also learned a second lesson, one that's most important—how day-to-day, hour-to-hour, to go about the process of rejecting my fears and living my faith. I want to share that with you, too. I've learned while writing this talk something about how fear works against faith in my life. I've realized that fear weakens my faith more than I had recognized. When my faith is strong, I'm happy, confident, even energetic as I approach each day. I'm able to remain calm as difficulties arise, keep the relative importance of things in perspective, and feel when I need it most the guidance and the comfort of the Spirit. But then there are the times when I am anxious about the problems I face and worried about what is coming next. Those are hard times, lonely times. I don't feel capable of handling what the day will bring. At times like that, I am likely to choose badly, make small problems worse by my reactions. I have learned that these are times of fear. I think fear works a little bit like a cold virus. Those viruses are all around us all the time. And fairly often I let one in and feel the early symptoms of a cold—a scratchy throat, a stuffy nose, a drop in energy, more generally some telltale grumpiness. I've learned to pay attention to those symptoms, to take some vitamin C, get some rest, and most of the time the symptoms passed without slowing me down very long. Sometimes, though, the virus pulls me down and into a bad cold. When that happens, I have to work on getting well until the cold runs its course. When I was younger, I tried to ignore even the worst colds and continued my usual activities. But then one of them developed into pneumonia. It took a lot of time in bed, a lot of penicillin, and about a year of my life to get my strength back. That's how I learned to take every cold seriously and to be on the lookout for the symptoms. Pneumonia can be life-threatening, you know. My experience with fear is like that. Fear is out there all the time, ready for me to let it in. I often find myself a little anxious, worried, a little discouraged and doubtful. I often have moments when I don't feel capable of solving my problems, of meeting my challenges, of overcoming my sorrows. Those are symptoms that need immediate attention. I've learned that as a result of a few extended bouts with fear, times when I was disabled spiritually and emotionally, as I was with pneumonia, fear too can be life-threatening. What is the source of fear? I think it's rooted in the assumption, one that comes all too easily to me if I'm not paying attention, that I must solve all my problems and face all my challenges alone, using my own resources. That's frightening, because deep in my heart I know how limited those resources are. So when I'm fearful, I'm also hopeless. And without hope, I'm paralyzed. Knowing that I'm not capable of changing myself or my circumstances for the better, I'm frozen in fear. That fear is a failure of faith. So I've learned from this writing assignment to take very seriously the power of fear to watch for its symptoms, and to do what I must to address them directly when they come. Fear has the power, coming on in little increments, no more disabling than a nagging cough or a stuffy nose, 
to accrue and eventually cancel out the faith that would enable me to move ahead, confident in the Lord's help that I can change myself and even some of the circumstances around me for the better. But I've also learned to take very seriously the power of faith to overcome and eliminate fear. I've been learning about that lately from the Book of Mormon. I've reread there some familiar and concise definitions of faith. First, this one from the prophet Moroni. I would show unto the world that faith is things hoped for but not seen. Wherefore, dispute not because ye see not, for ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. And the second one from Alma. Faith is not to have a perfect knowledge of things. Therefore, if ye have faith, ye hope for things which are not seen, which are true. These are clear and explicit definitions, and they both imply an important principle, that faith is a choice. Specifically, faith is a choice to believe and then act upon that belief, and it's a choice to believe and act without the assurance that would follow from what Alma calls perfect knowledge. That is, faith is a choice to believe and act upon that belief in the face of uncertainty. But this last idea, that we choose faith in the face of uncertainty, prompts a question. At some special times in my life, the Spirit has witnessed to me that the restored gospel of Christ is true. Yet day to day, I find myself uncertain in the face of my challenges and difficulties and readily subject to doubt and to the fear that follows it. I have a testimony of the gospel, yet as I try day to day to live the gospel, I find myself having consciously to choose faith. Isn't that a contradiction? Having been given my own witness of truth, shouldn't I be beyond faith? Maybe I should be, but I'm not. Why is that? I think I've found an answer in a Bible story we all know. On a boat, in the dark, on a very stormy sea, Jesus is awakened by his frantic companions. Carest thou not that we perish? they ask. He calms the storm and then asks them in response, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? Indeed, how is it? Before we try to examine that, let's examine a prior question. Why did they need faith? They had the Savior present with them in the boat. How could they possibly fear anything? I think they were fearful because at that moment the only thing they had perfect knowledge of, as we know things in this life, was the intensity of the storm, the fragility of the boat, the depth of the water, and their distance from shore. At that moment, their mortal senses were filled with fear. They could see and hear and feel the threat of their circumstances. They had, in days prior, witnessed for themselves the Savior's power. He had promised them the Father's blessings. Yet their memories of His works and His words and their hope in the future reality of His promises were not at this moment nearly so real to them as that storm. This story helps me understand something important about faith. Faith is founded upon our memory of divine witnesses and blessings received in the past and our hope in divine promises for the future. 
founded upon promises of the past and the future. Our faith is, or can be, vulnerable when experiences in the present seem to contradict both. So even with knowledge of the truth, in the present moments of our day-to-day experience, we remain subject to fear and must choose again and again, consciously, to believe, to remember, to hope, to have faith. Here's the problem. I know the gospel of the Restoration is true, but I don't know what today, much less tomorrow, will bring to me and to those I love. I have felt directly the Lord's love for me, but I don't know how or when the seemingly impossible problems that occupy my thoughts and prayers will be resolved. I know the Lord has promised that He will take care of me and mine, but still, day to day, our lives often seem uncertain and painful. So I have learned that I must choose each day, and on some days each moment, to proceed on the basis of faith remembering the Lord's past blessings and believing and acting upon my hope in His promises. And I have to do that even when the evidence of present trouble is almost overwhelming. I have to remind myself each day to choose faith and to keep choosing faith in the face of realities that seem to contradict it for as long as it takes. And this is, I think, what Moroni means by a trial of faith. I have to remind myself constantly that this choice of faith will, sooner or later, result in answers to prayers and miracles in my life. Here's another more comprehensive definition of faith, this one from our Bible dictionary. Faith is to hope for things which are not seen but which are true and must be centered in Jesus Christ in order to produce salvation. To have faith is to have confidence in something or someone. The Lord has revealed Himself and His perfect character, possessing in their fullness all the attributes of love, knowledge, justice, mercy, unchangeableness, power, and every other needful thing, so as to enable the mind of man to place confidence in Him without reservation. This definition makes explicit something that is implicit in the briefer definitions of faith given to us by Alma and Moroni, that the object of our faith, that what we have faith in, is the capacity of the Savior's Atonement to bless us, to heal us, and to enable us, in the term Elder Bednar used, to act beyond our abilities. As I have thought about this, I have begun to think that faith might well be the path the channel, that the power of the Atonement must travel if it is to transform our lives. It may be only in the moments when I am filled with faith, with my fears crowded out, that I make myself available to the healing and enabling power of the Atonement. It may be only then that I can be comforted, restored, made able to overcome my problems, and to change for the better. Put another way, It is actions of faith to keep our covenants, actions chosen sometimes directly in the face of fear, that are those very transformations of our souls that the Atonement promises. So the first lesson I've learned from this writing assignment includes these ideas about the relationship of faith and fear. The second lesson I have learned is how to put those actions of faith into daily practice how to live each day in a way that draws constantly upon the blessings of the Atonement to dispel fears and enable change for the better. I have learned while preparing this message something about how I can engage myself very actively 
in the ongoing process of choosing to live in that kind of faith. As I said a moment ago, I think faith might open a divine channel through which we receive the transformative blessings of the Atonement. And I think the opposite occurs as well. Fear closes that channel. To put it bluntly, choosing fear—and fear, like faith, is also a choice—may well keep the blessings of the Atonement from reaching us. For me, this life, for all its complexity, is beginning to boil down to the ongoing choice between faith and fear. We choose constantly between faith and the capacity of the Atonement to bring us happiness and peace in the Lord's way and in His time, and fear that the trials of this world will put peace and happiness and progress and answers to our prayers out of our reach. I think both these statements are true, by the way. The Atonement really does have the capacity to bring us happiness and peace and power to change. And without our constant choice to keep it active in our life, peace and happiness and positive change really are out of our reach. In a way, our situation is the same as that of the Savior's companions that night in the boat in the storm. We have in our experiences, in our scriptures, our doctrines, and particularly in our covenants, his promises of salvation in both this life and the next. But our problems, so insistently and empirically present to us in each moment, are almost always more real to us than those promises. If we choose that reality to live in, we choose fear over faith. So what can we do about that? What exactly does it take, day by day, hour by hour, to choose faith over fear? My youngest daughter and newest son-in-law are patiently therapeutic in their approach to my fearfulness. For my birthday last year, they copied in calligraphy a quote from President Hinckley and framed it for my office. It hangs above my desk. This is what it says. It isn't as bad as you sometimes think it is. It all works out. Don't worry. <laughs> I read that every day, multiple times. These are the first three sentences of a statement President Hinckley included in his wife's funeral program that must have been one of the hardest of this good man's life. Here's the rest of it. Don't worry. I say that to myself every morning. It will all work out. Put your trust in God and move forward with faith and confidence in the future. The Lord will not forsake us. He will not forsake us. If we will put our trust in Him, if we pray to Him, if we live worthy of His blessings, He will hear our prayers. I think this is the answer to my question about how to go about the constant project of choosing faith. This is what faith looks like in daily practice. And if President Hinckley needed to remind himself daily to choose faith over fear, then I should probably be reminding myself regularly and even more often. President Hinckley wasn't the only prophet who needed a reminder to choose faith instead of fear. Moroni did. In Ether 12, he described himself fearful that he was not up to the Lord's assignment to write the gospel of Christ for his descendants. And he was right. He wasn't up to it, at least not on his own. So he confessed his fears to the Lord and received in response this lesson. If men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness that they may be humble, and my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. 
Could it be that when we find ourselves fearful, that is, when we find ourselves failing to choose faith, we should consider this a sign, a symptom even, of our urgent need to return to the Lord so He can strengthen our faith? I think it could. So how exactly do we return to Him? The Lord's lesson to Moroni suggests that humility is the way. Let us look at it again. The first step in that turn to the Lord is to recognize that fear is a symptom of weakened faith. The second is to acknowledge this weakness and our need for the Lord to help us overcome it by renewing our trust in Him. And as we begin to again to trust the Lord more than our own capacities, a trust we have lost at some point, we become humble. That's how it worked out for Moroni. He recognized in his fear a lack of trust in the Lord. What did he do? He took his fear to the Lord, precisely what we all should do with our fears. When he did that, the Lord comforted him, taught him, and empowered him beyond his capacity. Moroni exercised his faith, and that faith enabled him to write with marvelous clarity and power of the Lord's plan. Every time I find myself fearful, sooner or later I realize that I am not being particularly humble. I realize I have been trying to live my life and solve my problems on my own terms and with my own capacities, my own intellect usually, and have forgotten to trust instead the power and plan of the Lord. May I comment for a moment on the difficulty of humility? As President Benson taught us years ago, pride is a my will rather than a thy will approach to life. The opposite of pride is humbleness, meekness, submissiveness, or teachableness. Pride is reliance on our own judgment, our own capacities, our own purposes, unsubordinated to the Lord's. And may I suggest that a university, even this university, can, if we are not careful, nurture pride. That is because a purpose of a university, even this university, is to enable people to achieve impressive feats of learning and expertise. That's why we are here, students and faculty alike, and these are goals that can, if not managed with humility, bring us pride. Perhaps that is why so many of us here struggle with fear. As we increase in learning and skill, as we compete with and compare ourselves with others, we begin to rely on ourselves rather than on the Lord. But deep in our hearts we know how limited we really are, so we work and live in fear. The point is, like faith and fear, humility is also a choice. It's an ongoing choice to be made every moment of every day, sometimes in spite of circumstances that persistently teach us pride. Because I need to be reminded to choose humility, I'm glad that our daughters gave Linda and me a particular Christmas gift a few years ago. We are empty nesters. Our three daughters are married, and so far none of them has chosen to live with us which is okay. In fact, only one of them lives anywhere near our time zone. So as the time approached for them to leave us, our two younger daughters gave us dogs. (laughs) I read somewhere that departing adult children do such things out of concern for the parents they feel they are abandoning. They think their parents' lives will be empty and void without them, so they try to replace themselves with pets for their parents to care for. May I suggest that this may be a misplaced concern? (laughs) Anyway, Linda and I have come to love these dogs. 
Each morning and afternoon they greet me with happy anticipation of a walk, so we walk. And as we walk, the dogs teach me lessons about humility. Tommy, the black and white one, stays with me, but Lucy, the yellow lab, is a wanderer. She frequently follows her nose off the trail on her own. Not that she wants to get away from me, it's just that when she finds an interesting scent, she forgets about me. Sometimes she comes back when I call, but at other times I have to go after her. When I catch up, she stops, wags her tail, and smiles at me. Dogs do smile, you know. Tommy, however, is entirely reliable. He walks with me, sometimes ahead, but always turning back to be sure he's with me. He always comes when I call. When I need him to stop, like when when he comes to a busy road, I say, wait, and he waits. No matter how excited he is to proceed, only when I say, okay, does he rocket ahead with a joyful bark. I know people aren't and shouldn't be like dogs, so I'm not going to take this analogy very far. But I do learn from these dogs' daily lessons in humility. Here's one. A trainer once told us that dogs are happiest when they understand clearly their relationship to their master. I think that we, too, are happiest when we understand clearly our relationship with our master, our Savior, and give our hearts and will entirely to him. Here's another lesson. I should be like Tommy, staying close to my master at all times, learning his language, keeping him in sight, obeying his commandments without hesitation, always coming when called. Here's a third. I should be like Tommy, but I'm more like Lucy. I get distracted by my own agenda and follow my nose off the Lord's path. But when he comes to get me, I should respond to him as Lucy responds to me when I catch up to her. She's glad to see me, glad to turn and follow me. I should smile when I see him coming. So here's a summary of that second lesson I've learned from this writing assignment about how to go about choosing faith instead of fear. If I am humble, if I work constantly to choose attitudes and actions of humility before the Lord, then He will strengthen my faith and eliminate my fears. The healing and enabling power of the Savior's atonement, of His love, really, will become more real to me than the threats carried by any storm I might otherwise fear. I have learned, simply put, that active and practical humility is the way we choose faith. So what exactly do I need to do each day to be humble enough to fully choose faith? A few years after I began teaching here, President Eyring, then Elder Eyring, spoke to the faculty in this hall, and at the end of his remarks he directed us to a scripture. It's a profoundly simple one that I hadn't noticed before, but has since remained very present in my mind. I think this scripture, in the words spoken by Mormon and recorded by Moroni, may say all that needs to be said about how to live in humility and choose faith. And the first fruits of repentance is baptism. And baptism cometh by faith unto the fulfilling the commandments. And the fulfilling the commandments bringeth remission of sin. And the remission of sins bringeth meekness and lowliness of heart. And because of meekness and lowliness of heart cometh the visitation of the Holy Ghost, which comforter filleth with hope and perfect love, which love endureth by diligence unto prayer until the end shall come, when all the saints shall dwell with God. I think that's the answer. That's how we stay humble and choose faith. It's a process we should practice throughout all our lives as regularly as the process of waking and sleeping. By choosing to live our lives within the context of this ongoing process of repentance and renewal, we keep our covenants. And through keeping our covenants, we change and are changed for the better.
What about fear? Fear is the primary target of this renewal process, and fear is the prompt to turn and return to the Lord in the process this scripture describes, a process that begins in an act of humility. In humility we choose faith, and faith becomes the channel through which the Lord blesses us with hope and miracles and perfect love. So that's what I have learned about faith and fear. Maybe these lessons apply to some of you, too. In faith, we are free of fear. In faith, we are blessed with peace that comes in the form of confidence that, as bad things happen, as problems arise, as confusion confronts us, as people hurt or disappoint us, as people we love suffer, that in the midst of all the storms of this life, in the phrase our carillon bells remind us of every hour on the hour, all is well. I am grateful for the peace and the confidence and the strength that follows when my faith refutes my fears. I am grateful for the blessings of the Atonement which strengthen my faith when I turn and return in humility to the Lord. I pray that we may each be more humble and so choose greater faith. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You have been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Addressing the Fears in Our Lives, with thoughts from Scott C. Esplin and Gregory Clark. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.